Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Jonah. To the book of Jonah. We are starting a new sermon series this morning that we're calling, as you see on the screen, God in Pursuit. And I'm excited about this sermon series for several reasons. One, I think it is a, a powerful book. And, and the challenge I think that we have is that it is so familiar. I mean, we know about Jonah and the big fish. The challenge that we have is that it is so familiar that many times we miss the actual significance Sometimes the more familiar something gets, we miss the, the impact of it. So my prayer as we go through this, this is how I want you guys to pray, is that as we go through this series on the book of Jonah, that you will, that, that God will show us things that we have not seen before, that he will challenge us in ways that we have not been challenged before, and as a result of our study in this book, that we will truly be transformed. I mean, we, we, we want to be changed. And many times when we think about the book of Jonah, we simply think of Jonah and the big fish. And that's really the extent of our understanding of the book of Jonah. But the truth is it is packed absolutely full of truths and meanings and lessons that we need to grasp. Now, one of the other things I think we have to realize and acknowledge as we begin is that when we look at the book of Jonah, we are looking at perhaps the Old Testament book that has been attacked more than any other book. I mean, unbelievers, atheists, agnostics, they look at the book of Jonah and they say, you mean to tell me that Jonah ran from God, he was thrown in the water, he was swallowed by a big fish, lived there for three days, the fish spit him out and he was fine. How can that possibly be? And they sometimes will reject the entire book of Jonah simply because of that. And so what I want to challenge us with as we begin is this. We either have to accept this book as true and the word of the living and true God, or we just throw it all out. The only option that is not valid is to pick and choose what we want to believe. And when we say, or when people say, you know what, I don't believe the book of Jonah, that's crazy, how in the world could that possibly be? When we fail to believe and trust what is written in the book of Jonah, we also fail to believe and trust what Jesus said, because he points and actually quotes and references the book of Jonah, he views it as valid. So when, when people reject the book of Jonah, they're ultimately rejecting even the words of Christ. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Now, I want to give you a little background. Anytime we start a new book, I want to give you a little background about it. Just some interesting facts about the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah contains four chapters and 48 verses. Jonah, I think most of you know, was a prophet to Israel. Chapter 1, just the overview, chapter 1 is about God calling Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't want to. We'll see a little bit why this morning and more here in a couple weeks. So he runs in the opposite direction. Chapter 2 is Jonah in the fish, getting right with God. Chapter 3 is Jonah obeying God. Chapter 4 is God strengthening Jonah after he goes through this period of depression and discouragement. Now here's something we have to understand. The theme of Jonah is not the fish. The fish is only mentioned four times. One commentator said this, that it is easy to get caught up in what is taking inside of the fish instead of what's taking place inside of Jonah. That's a wonderful statement. The theme of Jonah is not Nineveh. Nineveh is only mentioned nine times. The theme of of Jonah, in fact, is not even Jonah. Jonah is only mentioned 18 times. The theme of the book of Jonah is God. 
In fact, in the 48 verses in this book, God, a name of God or a pronoun referring to God is mentioned 38 times. So you have 48 verses. God is referenced 38 times. The theme of the book of Jonah is God. Don't miss that. Anytime we elevate Jonah to the main theme, we minimize the role of God. And really, this is all about God. This is the reason, actually, why we're calling this series God in Pursuit, because what we're going to see is that God is always pursuing. And this morning and the weeks to come, some of you are going to be challenged by God in specific areas of your life where you have been rebelling. I want you to understand something. If you are in any area of your life, you are in a position where you are running from God, you are rebelling from God. I want you to understand clearly this morning that God is in pursuit of you. That God is chasing after you. And the truth that we're going to see throughout this book is that you and I, we cannot outrun God's grace. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we rebel against God, God is in pursuit. And so as we go through this, there may be areas in your life right now where you are rebelling against God. And maybe not a full, full out, complete rebellion where you're doing the exact opposite of what God wants you to do. But there may be specific areas in your life where you're living in rebellion to God. And I want you to know that you cannot outrun the grace of God. And God is in pursuit of you this morning. That's kind of the theme. Now, I want us to begin just by understanding this story. And so if you have your Bibles, just look with me at Jonah chapter 1. Look at the first couple of verses. Then the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. The key word this morning that you see on the very bottom of the screen is rebellion. Each week we're going to have a key word. The key word this morning is rebellion. God clearly told Jonah what to do. He, what, what was the command? Go. Go. I mean, the, the, Jonah could not use the excuse, well, I really didn't understand what you meant by go. Right off the bat, the command clearly is to go to Nineveh. He's told not just to go, but where to go. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more here in a few moments. But Nineveh was a very wicked city. Nineveh was one of the kind of the capitals of the of the pagan nations and they had oppressed Israel and they had tortured Israel and they had been abusive to Israel and they had attacked Israel but they were huge there were millions of people in the city of Nineveh and from Jonah's perspective the last thing they needed was God's forgiveness what they needed was God's judgment when Jonah's looking at the city of Nineveh, he does not want them to experience the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. When he looks at Nineveh, all he wants is for them to be punished and them to be wiped off the face of the earth. He did not want them to experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. He did not want them to repent and turn to God. In his mind, they deserved the wrath of God, and quite honestly, they did. So he's told to go. He's told where to go. He's told why. Their wickedness is great. He's told what to do. Preach to them. Proclaim God to them. Proclaim God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness. See, all God wanted for Jonah to do was to go and to proclaim God. He wanted Jonah to communicate the message of who God was and what God was doing and God's love and God's mercy. So the command is clear. But what we see Jonah doing in verse 3 is clear rebellion. Look at verse 3. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Jonah, a prophet of God, a spokesperson for God, rebels against 
God. He's determined to flee. Now, you have to understand a little bit of geography here to see what Jonah is really doing. I've got a map. Put up that map. So maybe you can read this. You see where Joppa is. You see where Samaria is. You see where Nineveh is. What Jonah does is run in the exact, the exact opposite direction, 2,500 miles away. So Jonah couldn't say, you know what, I was trying to go to Columbia and I made it to, I made it to Orangeburg. He wasn't even headed in the right direction. He said, okay, God wants me to go this direction. I am going to run 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. In fact, where he was trying to run to in, in, in Tarshish was the furthest place that you could possibly go in the known world. In their world, this was, there, there was nowhere else further in that direction you could go. So do you see the extent of Jonah's rebellion? It's not that he started out in the right direction but had some wrong directions and got turned around. It's not that he just kind of misunderstood where God was trying to tell him to go. He knowingly and deliberately said, I know God wants me to go right here, about 250 miles perhaps. I know God wants me to go here. But instead of taking this 250-mile journey this direction, I'm going to choose instead to take a 2,500-mile journey in the exact opposite direction. He was running. He was rebelling. I want you to notice how how intentional this word. In verse 3, there are these action words. Do you see them? In verse 3, there's seven of them. He got up, flee, went down, found, paid, went down, go. I mean, he is making deliberate decisions every step of the way to run in the exact opposite direction of where God wanted him. Now, if you have your bulletin, there's an outline on the back. And I want this is where I want to begin giving you some of these points. Some of these application points, and these are, these are important. So what do we learn? Here's number one. Rebellion towards God's command leads to running from God himself. Two times in verse three, if you have your Bibles, look at verse three. Two times in verse three, he is not only rebelling against God's commands, notice that he is running from the presence of God. Twice in verse three, you see that he is running from the very presence of God. Verse three at the beginning of the verse, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Down at the very end of the verse, it says that he paid the fare, went down into the, to it to go with them to Tarshish. Notice what it says, from the Lord's presence. See, when you and I deliberately rebel against the commands of God, we are in danger not only of disobeying God's commands, but we are also in danger of running from God himself, running from the presence of God. See, it's not just that we say, okay, I really don't want to do this. I'm going to do something else, and it's still kind of good. When we rebel against God, we are running from the very presence of God. So in your life this morning, if you do not want to get to a place in your life, in your spiritual walk with God, where you are running from, fleeing from the very presence of God, the way you guard against that is by being sure that you do not rebel against the commands of God. See, if you never rebel against the commands of God, you will never be in danger of running from the presence of God. I mean, there's a reason why people don't want to be in the presence of believers and they don't want to be in the presence where worship is taking place and where God is being praised. And sometimes we simply go through the motions of worship. But sometimes the reason why that happens, the reason why we don't truly worship as though we are in the presence of God is because in our hearts we are running from that presence. See, we will never worship sincerely. We will never worship with true worship and true praise with a heart that is sincere when we are rebelling against the God's commands and running from the presence of God himself. We have to be on guard against that. Here's number two. 
Open doors do not always lead to God's will. I can see Jonah getting to the harbor, and this was the only harbor in the region. I can see him going, getting to the harbor and saying, you know what? I had no idea, but there's a ship here going in the opposite direction. Maybe this is God's will. I mean, maybe this is really what God wants me to do. Just because there is an opportunity, just because we may see something as an open door, is no guarantee that that open door will lead to God's will. Jonah goes, finds a ship. It's convenient. He looks at the ship and saying, you know what? God has really opened this door for me. I'm so thankful. Let me praise God that he's opened this door. When in reality, he's finding an open door to justify his rebellion. You ever done that? You ever been in a place in your life where you are looking for something that looks good, that, that can be classified as God's will, that can be classified as an open door, and everyone else may look and say, you know what, they're following God, but deep down in your heart, all you know, deep down in your heart, you know that you are running from God. No matter how you term it, no matter how you phrase it, we have to be careful that we do not find and build and create excuses to justify our rebellion. Because it is easy to justify sin. It is easy to do what we want to do in the name of an open door. Number three, a knowledge of God's word does not guarantee obedience. What was Jonah's profession? Prophet. Prophet of God. You know what? He would have known the word of God. As someone who spoke on behalf of God, he would have been involved in worship and he would have involved in going to the, the temples and the tabernacles and the places of worship that they had. He would have known God's word. Let me read you what Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a common psalm that was used in Jewish public worship. And as a prophet, he would not only have known this, he would have led the people in this. Listen to what Psalm 31 9 says. It says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live in the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. So Jonah, numerous times, would have stood up before the people and led in this psalm of worship that says, God, where can I flee from your presence? And where can I go to run from you? If I go to heaven, you're there. And if I go to the grave, you're there. And if I go to the west or to the east, no matter where I go, God, you are there. He would have led the people in worship. He knew the word of God, but yet the individual who led people in the worship of God, led people in the knowledge that God is everywhere and that we cannot run for him, himself now is running from the presence of God. See, it is possible for you and I this morning to be here, to know God's word, to sing God's word, to memorize God's word, recite God's word, pray God's word, listen to God's word. In, ingest God's word, put it into our hearts and our minds. It is possible for you and I to listen, to know, to memorize, to quote God's word, but still in that exact same moment, rebel. Just because you have a knowledge of God's word is no guarantee that you are going to live in obedience to God. Scripture is filled with examples of people who knew God, worshipped God, knew his word, but then still lived in direct disobedience and rebellion to who God is and what God wanted them to do for their life. And there may be some of you here this morning that that is you. I mean, you know God's word. You sing it. You come to church every week and you read it and you listen to it being read. You know it. But in your heart, even though you know scripture, you are still rebelling against 
who God is and what it is that God wants you to do. That is a danger that all of us must strive to avoid. Let me give you number four. And I'm just going to touch on this this morning. But hatred of certain people can lead to spiritual rebellion. The question that we have to ask this morning is this. We've already touched on a little bit. Why did Jonah not want to go and preach to the people of Nineveh? I mean, why was he so angry? I mean, why was he willing to run 2,500 miles in the opposite direction? Why did he not want to go and do what God had called him to do? And let me just kind of give you a little clue into this. And we'll see this a lot in chapter 3. But we already mentioned that the people of Nineveh were wicked. They were responsible for the murder of countless Jews. They were responsible for conquering several Jewish towns and Jewish cities. Not only were they they responsible for the conquering and the kind of the invading of other Jewish towns and cities, but at the exact same time, they were very cruel in how they did it. They were very particular and deliberate in not just conquering, but in killing and in torturing and so when, when, when Jonah looked at this group of people, he, I mean, he was hurt by them. He, he saw their wickedness. He had probably had families who had been affected by them and families that had been touched by them and families that had been misplaced by them and, and towns where he had visited that had been completely destroyed by them. So again, his attitude was not one of wanting to see them repent. In fact, he looked at them and says, I do not want them to repent. I want them to be wiped off the face of the earth. They do not need God's forgiveness. They need God's judgment. They do not need God's mercy. They need to experience the wrath of God. And so here's where we have to be very real with this. Because this is a very specific, I guess, application from this. When we get to the place in our spiritual lives where we have a hatred for a certain group of people, that hatred that we point at certain groups of people can lead to spiritual rebellion. I mean, Jonah, all of his life, had been a prophet of God. But when God tells him to minister to this group of people, minister to this nationality, minister to this race, when he calls him to, to go and proclaim God's love and God's mercy to this group of people, that is where the spiritual rebellion begins. See, what drove his spiritual rebellion was his hatred of this people. And again, we'll touch on this more in chapter 3, but we live in a very race-charged culture. And we have to understand that any racism that exists in our heart is in direct opposition to the character of God. It is in opposition to the commands of Scripture. And it is in direct opposition to the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sin that should not be tolerated. It is a sin of which we should repent. We also live in a very terror and religiously charged culture. We live in a world where we look around and we're, we're, we see the Islamic-driven terrorism around us. And many Christians can look at Islam and the adherence of Islam and people from Islamic countries, and we can look at that, and we respond in the exact same way that Jonah does. We, I, I've heard Christians say, I don't want them to experience God's forgiveness. They need to be wiped off the face of the earth. So... We're going to go on a little rabbit trail this morning. Can you, you all okay with that? You don't have a choice. I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> but just how do we respond in a such a is, it, 
terrorist world. I mean, how do we respond when we see, as Christians, how are we to respond when we witness and we see Islamic terrorism? How are are we to respond to that? I mean, what is the Christian responsibility? I mean, isn't that a question that we need to know how to answer? Yeah. We need to know how to answer this. See, if you're here and you're in your mind thinking, I don't care how I'm supposed to answer, then you especially need to listen. Because we have to be able to look and think biblically, not just in areas of life where it's easy, but we have to look and think biblically in areas of life where it's hard. And as Christians, we do not run from challenges and we do not run from difficult topics. We, we, we trust that God's word guides us in that. So how do we respond in a, in a terroristic society? When we see terrorism taking place and lives being killed and attacks being carried out, how do we view those people? How, do, how are we to respond to that? I want to give you three things that we must understand. This is not on your outline. Number one, we have to understand the responsibility of government. In Scripture, governments are called to protect their citizens, promote justice, and punish those who do evil. Read Romans 13. Romans 13 stresses the responsibility of government to protect its citizens, to promote justice, to punish those who do evil. Governments are are, are called to be the protector of the citizens. That's their primary responsibility. So understand that aspect. That is the government's responsibility to, to protect and to punish. Number two, we have to understand personal responsibility, the, the responsibility of individuals. Individuals have a different responsibility. Individuals, as you and I as individuals, we are called to love and to forgive and to pray and to share the gospel and to, and to pray for the salvation of evildoers. We must guard against the temptation to, to, to try and personally live out what has been given as a responsibility to government. See, when we fail to understand the distinction between government's responsibility and individual's responsibility, when we begin to merge those, we begin to to create challenges that weren't intended to be there. So number three, understand the responsibility of the Christian. So as a Christian, you and I are called to pray for our enemies, to love for enemies, pray for those who persecute us. So you and I as believers, we are to desire the salvation of all people who do not know Christ, even if they are members of ISIS. We are called to long for, pray for, desire their salvation. You and I should want the gospel to advance. We should want the good news to advance. We should want people who are in direct opposition to Christ, in direct opposition to God, in direct opposition to Christianity, in direct opposition to Scripture. We should desire that they experience the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. We should desire that they see their need of a Savior. They repent of their sins and they give their life to Christ. We should pray for their salvation. Because there is no one on earth that is any less deserving of the gospel than you and I. But at the same time, while we as Christians, we pray for the salvation of the enemies of God and the enemies of Christianity, and we pray for the salvation of those who are opposed and are doing so much evil in the world, it is not contradictory at the exact same time to support government in protecting its citizens. See, sometimes we view that as a contradiction. We say, well, how how can I pray for them and pray for their forgiveness and pray for their salvation and pray that they turn to God and at the exact same time long for government to seek justice? 
See, that's why we have to keep the two separate. That makes sense? So as individuals, as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, your responsibility is to pray for the salvation. We want the gospel to advance. That's the reason why so many missionaries right now are going to these countries that are closed to Christianity. And they are working as teachers and working in business. And they are building relationships and they are sharing the gospel and they are proclaiming Christ. Because that is the Christian response. We desire for their salvation. We should long for them to understand the gospel. We should desire, just like the people of Nineveh, God says, go and proclaim me. Go and proclaim the the truth of who God is. Go and show them my love. We should desire the exact same thing. But if we are not careful, we can end up responding just like Jonah. And instead of desiring the salvation of a group of people, we can run in the exact opposite direction. And our mindset can be, I would rather them be wiped off the face of the earth then see their need of Christ and repent. And that is a sinful response. That is a rebellious response. And in our lives, hatred of a certain people can lead to spiritual rebellion, and we must be on guard against that. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to see Jonah goes and he preaches to these people, and we're going to see their response. But our desire should be for their salvation. Jonah knows in this, as, we, as we're seeing, he knew that he could not run from the presence of the Lord. But this rebellion is building in his heart. This rebellion is building in his life. I want you to notice what happens next. Verse 4 is really a, a turning point in the text. So verse 1 and 2 is God's command. Verse 3 is Jonah's rebellion. But then look at verse 4. Then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose at the sea that the ships threatened to break apart. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to, notice this, to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah, he had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. Kind of crazy when you really think about it. So how, one commentator said that these sailors being afraid of the storm is like taxi cab drivers in New York City being afraid of traffic. I mean, they were used to it. And what kind of storm did this have to be to cause them to be so afraid where they're throwing things overboard and the vessel is starting to break a point? But notice in verse 4 how specific it is that God hurled. You see the deliberateness of that? It's the idea that God kind of got this storm up and he put it in his hands and he threw it towards Jonah. Which leads to our fifth point this morning. The same God who calms the storm in the life of the submissive can create a storm in the life of the rebellious. We see in the New Testament Jesus calming storms and walking on water and saying, peace be still. The same God that calms the storms in the life of the submissive can create the storm in the life of the rebellious. God can create storms in your life, not for the purpose of of punishing you, but for the purpose of getting your attention, the purpose of drawing your focus back to him. And we're going to see that happen. Let me go ahead and give you number six. Your rebellion will always affect other people. Your rebellion, the rebellion in your life will always affect other people. You see that in verse 5. There's the rebellion of Jonah. The storm did not only affect him. Now all of a sudden, all the people on this ship, all the people on this sailing vessel are also affected by the storm. Why? Because Jonah's rebellion had had kind of a, a rippling effect where other people in his life were now also affected by the rebellion. I want you to understand something. When you and I live in rebellion against God, other people in our lives will be 
affected. When you rebel against God, other people in your life will be affected by your rebellion. There's something about this storm that was different. So the captain, in verse 6, the captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Great question. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will answer us. So get the picture. They're each crying out to their own gods. The storm is still coming. Jonah is asleep. The captain goes to Jonah and basically says, we've been crying out to our gods. He's not answered. Maybe if you cry out to your God, God will hear you. He will answer. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Verse 7, come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots, then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What is, this, what is your country, and what people are you from? And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens, who made the seas and dry land. The men were even more afraid. What's Jonah saying? I serve the God who created this storm, basically, is what he's saying. So the men were even more afraid. What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the presence, from the Lord's presence, because he had told them. So Jonah's very open. He says, I worship Yahweh. And then the next breath, he says, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What a contradiction. So they said to him, what should we do, verse 11, to calm this sea that's against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so it may quiet down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Get the picture. Jonah says, I worship Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and the earth. In the next breath, he says, I am running from the presence of God. Then he also acknowledges, all you have to do is throw me overboard and and the, the storm will be over. Think about what he's saying. He did not know that there was going to come a fish to get him. He is saying, I would rather die. That's why he's saying. He said, just throw me over and let me die. See, I, I firmly believe that if in that moment Jonah would have fallen to his knees and confessed his rebellion and repented of his rebellion and said, God, I, I'm wrong, you're right, I will go and I will preach. I believe firmly that the, that the storms would have, would have stopped in that instance. But instead of saying, I will fall to my knees and repent of my rebellion, Jonah said, I would rather die. Let me give you your seventh point. Some people would rather die in rebellion to God than live in submission with God. Jonah says, I would rather die than go and do what you've told me to do. I would rather die than go and preach the gospel to these people. See, how many times, though, do we do the exact same thing? How many times do is there something in our lives that we know is wrong, but yet we refuse to confess, we refuse to repent, we hold on to our sin? So the question I want to ask you is, what is it in your life that you're holding on to? What is it in your life that you are embracing? Verse 13 So he tells them to throw him overboard. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. There's one more point that's not on your outline that I want you to, if you have room on your bulletin somewhere to write down. Here's number eight. 
God will accomplish his redemptive purpose. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Look back at verse 5. I want you to notice the difference between verse 5 and verse 16. So in verse 5, notice what it says. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God, little g. So they are each crying out to their own individual God, whoever that may have been. Whatever that may have been, they're each crying out to their own individual gods, seeking to, seeking to find help. Then you skip down to verse 16. Notice how the response now is completely different. The men feared the Lord, capital L, Yahweh, even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So in verse 5, as, as the storm is raging, they are each worshiping their own God, small g, each crying out to their own gods. They see no answer. A few verses later, after they see God work and they see the storm stopped and they hear the testimony of, of Jonah who says, I worship the God of Yahweh and I am running from him. And if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. They throw him over, the storm stops. They go from worshiping their own individual gods, little g, to worshiping and making sacrifices to the true God. What a change in just a few minutes. See, what this should remind us of is that God will accomplish his redemptive purpose. You say, what is God's redemptive purpose? What do you mean by that? It's the truth that God desires people to be saved. And he is not willing that any should perish. And even in your rebellion, God still will work in people's lives. And people around you will still hear of him. And they will still repent of their sins. And they will turn to him. The difference is, instead of God working through you, God will work around you. Instead of Jonah going to Nineveh and preaching, and we'll see how this story turns over the coming chapters. Instead of Jonah going and proclaiming God and seeing God work in amazing ways through him, he would rather die. But God says, your rebellion is not going to deter and change who I am. I am a God who loves, and I am a God who forgives, and I am a God of mercy, and I am a God of grace. And even though you are living in rebellion, I will still accomplish my redemptive purpose. God is committed to the plan of redemption. And your obedience or your disobedience does not change who God is, and it does not change what God desires to take place. He desires for people to know him and to praise him and to worship him. Jonah's disobedience did not deter God at all. These people stopped praying to their false gods and started worshiping and sacrificing to the true God. In closing, let me ask. In what area of your life are you living in rebellion right now? In what area in your life are you running from God? In what area of your life are you not just kind of getting off track a little bit, but what area in your life are you saying, I know this is what God wants me to do and I'm, I'm going to do this. In what area in your life are you saying, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. That is rebellion. And I want you to understand something. God is in pursuit of you. The same God who calms the storm in the life of the submissive can create the storm in the life of the rebellious. And not as punishment, not because God hates you or is mad at you, but to get your attention and to draw you back to himself. So this morning, I'm going to ask three questions. I kind of already asked the first one, but here's three questions for you to think about. What area in your life are you currently living in rebellion? Second question. Who else in your life is being affected by your rebellion?
Because your rebellion will always affect others. And the third question, and we're going to see this next week especially, but are you willing to submit to the pursuit of God? Because God is in pursuit of you and your heart and your mind. And so he's calling us. He's calling us to repent. He's calling us to submit. Will you? Dunmark, if you will come. We all stand with me this morning as we close. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ.